So this quilt that's up here, my grandma made that. And she, she gave it to my wife and I. And it's gotten pretty threadbare if you're sitting close. There's little rips and things because this has been well loved by great grandkids. So, but we, we always think of her when we, we, when we see that. It's a, it's, we cherish that gift. But this is not my most cherished gift from my grandma. My most cherished gift from grandma is the night that she taught me how to pray. See, when I was about eight years old, I did not live with my dad, her, her son. And uh, the home that I did live in had a lot of abuse and a, a lot of neglect. And I'm sure as an eight-year-old, when I was telling her stories about things that went on at the house, that she was horrified. And I'm sure that she felt powerless to rescue us. But she knew one who is not powerless. And I remember there at night, she said, I think you should begin to pray. I think you should pray every day that God will make a way that you could come and live with your daddy. And I did start praying that prayer every day. And a year later, um, it, I did go to live with the dead. And uh, I just felt like there was this, this mountain obstacle to overcome with how things were done with kids in the 80s. And God just came over that mountain and brought me home. And there just ain't no mountain high enough, right? <laughs> now you're one, now you're, I wondered why you played that song. Um, yeah, there, there just, there's no mountain so high that he can't bring you home. We're going to be studying the book of Ezra this uh, next four weeks. And Ezra comes at a point in the history of the Old Testament when the people of Israel had been captured by foreign nations and they'd been taken away into captivity, into slavery. It's called the exile. And they prayed for a generation that God would make a way for them to co get to go home to the promised land. And, and Ezra begins with that God made a miraculous way for them to come home. He came over the, all the mountains that stood between them and that promised land. And he brought them home again. And that's what Ezra is going to be about for us. So I want to start off this morning asking, what mountains are you facing? What mountains are you trying to get over, you know, to come home? to God. And who was it that helped you know that there was a home to come home to? Did you have a grandparent who told you about Jesus? Or was it your parents? Or did you have uh, someone who lived in your neighborhood? Or a teacher? Or a coach? Or maybe God came some strange way to you. Maybe it was a movie or a book you read or a song you heard one time. The truth is there just is no mountain so high between you and God that God can't come over it, through it, around it to bring you home again. And that's, that's what this uh, series is going to be all about from Ezra. Uh, one of the cool things about uh, living with dad was we got to go to church. So that was fun until I was a teenager. And then I didn't want to go to church anymore. So I think a lot of teenagers go through that. I did. Mine did. Maybe yours are right now. And you just don't know what to do. And I just say, keep praying. Now, there's an extra layer on maybe why I didn't want to go to church. Um, I didn't know it then, but as it turns out, we later learned our pastor did not believe that Jesus was the divine son of God. Now you wonder, how can you become a Christian pastor and not believe that Jesus is the son of God? It was very common in the 80s for pastors to be like that. And I'm sure there are still some now. I wasn't at the youth lock-in, but there was a night when they had the high school lock-in at that church that the associate pastor was asked to come and teach on prayer. And the associate pastor showed up to the high school lock-in and said, I don't know very much about prayer, but I know a lot about Zen Buddhist meditation. 
And he got into lotus position, and instead of leading the high schoolers to Jesus, he led them through Eastern mysticism. So that's a low valley of a church experience. Um, I'm not going to learn to pray to God in this church. That's okay. God has other ways. So my parents have signed me up for a karate class, and they did not know it, but all the instructors at this karate school were crazy Pentecostal Christians. And so they would, I, I left a picture at home. I'm so ashamed. I found a picture Saturday morning of, of all, you know, we're all this tall and we're all praying. They prayed before every class. We bowed our heads for every karate class and prayed, Lord Jesus, we pray for your hand of protection around each and every one of these students. For you know, Lord, we're not going to take any safety precautions in this class tonight. Amen. <laughs> now, they didn't actually pray that last part, but it was strongly implied and consistently followed. Um, <laughs> Everything you see in Cobra Kai is totally true. So, um, but one year they made a karate camp and they sent us to Arkansas for karate camp. And that's where I got an orange belt. Not this one, I couldn't find it, but an orange belt. And the next morning, because we're 12 years old and we're at karate camp, they decided we should wake up at dawn and go for a one mile run. I had never woke up at dawn before and went for a one mile run, but I did at karate camp. And we, and we ran, we're sweaty, we're out of breath. And then it, it, the run ended in a field. And in the middle of the field, there was an open air chapel. So they filed us in and there was this elderly guy and his wife, and she had an electric keyboard set up and he sang. I'd never done this before either. Open air chapel, singing as the sun rises. And so here we are, we're doing it. And the old guy leads us to a few songs. And then he looks around, and he goes, you know, looking around here, I'm thinking maybe there's more to this than just learning how to knock somebody down. Is that true? And our instructor nodded and he goes, okay, then I want to tell you about Jesus. And he told us how many years ago his daughter had died uh, tragically in a drunk, killed by a drunk driver. And he said, at her funeral, we sang, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And he said, we sang that because we were celebrating because she loved Jesus. And he, she was with him in joy and peace forever. And he said, I want all you guys to know that life can be unexpectedly short. And I want you to know that you love Jesus and that you can be with him in peace and joy forever. And then he invited us to sing this song with him. And he said, um, I love him so. I love him so. I love him so. He's so good to me. I've never heard that song since that morning. I never sang like that with the long shadows of dawn creeping over the grass and the birds just waking up and the wind in my face and singing something from my heart to Jesus. And here's what I wonder many times through the years. When this elderly guy was asked, would you and your wife drag your keyboard out before dawn and set it up in the field and lead a bunch of sweaty karate kids who don't know it's about to happen in morning worship? Did he think, is this where my ministry has come to? And, and, did he, and did he know that he would be sharing with us the darkest valley of his life? And I've wondered if he know ever since that when he shared from that valley that God used that to bring life to other people. You just don't know. There's just no valley so deep and dark that you can get in that God can't bring light from it and bring life to you and to others through it. 
that's who he is. There ain't no valley low enough. Israel uh, is in a dark valley. They come home to the promised land and they start uh, rebuilding the temple, first order of business. Well, there's a governor who oversees that region. They're still controlled by the Persians. And there's enemy tribes around and they start showing up saying, what are you doing back here? Who told you you could rebuild this temple? And they say, well, we have a decree from the king, uh, the last king. And they say, oh, we'll see about that. But in the meantime, you stop all this construction or we're going to go to war. And so they're shut down. And then this, this governor named Tatnai and some other official named Shatar Bozanai, they actually take a trip to Persia to tattle on them to the king. So they, get, they arrive in Persia and King Darius is now the king. And they say, do you know that rebellious group, the Jews that the previous king wiped out and hauled off to slavery is back? And do you know they're rebuilding this temple to this other God? And they say that the king before you told them they could do it. So we'd like you, if you would, your, your majesty, search the archives and see if they're making all this up. And King Darius says, I surely will. Now, here's what you need to know about Persian kings. Persian kings considered themselves to be God on earth. I am the bright and the morning star, one of the Persian kings once prayed. Isaiah goes back and makes fun of it and says, I don't think so. But anyways, <laughs> King Darius believes he's a God and he believes all the kings before him were gods before him. And they believe their words are unbreakable. And so to support this whole thing of Godhood, he said, let's go see what the previous God on earth said and we're going to enforce whatever it is because if my word's unbreakable, then his word's unbreakable. They search the archives of Persia. He says, there is a decree. They come back, there was a decree found. He says, it's 20 years old and it's not being followed. And at this point, I bet Tat and I and Shatar Boz and I are like, oh, here it comes. The king's going to be mad at Israel. We're going to get to go back, shut that temple down. We might get to take that region back over again. They're going to be paying tribute to us. Yes, tell us what this decree says, your, your majesty, and we will do it. And Darius says, here's what it says. First of all, it says that you local rulers are supposed to pull back and leave them in peace. Then it says here that you guys are supposed to... Um, collect taxes from your local region and give some to finish that temple. Furthermore, this decree said that you're, they're supposed to be able to go to you daily and, and collect building supplies and you're supposed to give them whatever they need. And at this point, I bet the guy's jaws are hitting the floor. He says, oh, and then in this last part I like, it says that you're supposed to ask those priests in that temple to pray for me, the king, and my family. So, could you go on back and ask them to pray for me? And then I, King Darius, am going to add one other thing to this. If this temple isn't finished this time in short order, I want to know who is responsible for it not being finished. I want a beam pulled out of their house. I want it planted in their front yard, and I want them impaled on the beam and their house torn down. You catch my meaning? Go in peace. <laughs> These guys showed up to shut them down, and they end up getting sent home being told... They have to provide the money for the temple. They have to provide the, the, the supplies for the temple. They have to request prayers from the temple. And if they don't, they're all going to get killed. Here's, here's where we pick up in Ezra chapter 6, verse 13. Tatanai, governor of the province of the west of the Euphrates, and Shatar Bozanai and their colleagues complied at once with the command of King Darius. I bet they did. So the Jewish elders continued their work. And they were greatly encouraged by the preaching of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo. And that's two other books you can read in the Old Testament if you want. 
The temple was finally finished as had been commanded by the God of Israel and decreed by Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. The temple was completed on March 12th during the sixth year of King Darius's reign. Now notice the scriptures don't say, that King Darius, he turned out to be an okay guy. They know if that previous order had said, kill them all, then he would have done that instead. They know that they only got this favor because God swayed the hearts of these pagan rulers to look favorably upon them and hatch this incredible deal that let them build the temple at no expense to themselves. They know it was a miracle and that God moved the hearts so they could have those decrees from their enemies. And so uh, they praise God that they were in this dark valley that they were powerless to ever get themselves out of. And he did an amazing thing. He did an amazing thing to bring them out. So what valley are you in? It's all right. Most people who come to God come through a valley. Many folks have experienced a recent loss or a grief, and they, they come to God for whatever comfort there may be to make sense of it all. Some people come through a valley of fear. They fear a loss or a grief that is about to happen but hasn't happened yet, and they come praying and seeking God's protection. Some of you are watching on live stream to see if this church might be a safe place to seek the safety of God and if, if, if nothing weird's going to happen here. Um, some people, the valley is just a sense of purposelessness. Life is going quite well. A good income, good family, good health. So you wonder, why don't I feel more fulfilled? Why don't I have the peace I should have? I have everything I ever wanted. But something's missing. Here's the truth. All those valleys are really, all people come to church really because God is calling them. And they sense some whisper that maybe you just can't quite hear and you think, maybe if I go to some place where God is or the people of God are, maybe this nagging whisper will turn into something I can actually just hear and understand and follow. It'll become like a song in my heart or a word for my soul. And so you come just seeking if this is it, if this will finally make you what connected to God, whoever he might be. Whatever it is, there's no valley so deep that, that he won't come and bring you out and bring you life and bring you home because that's who he is. A church started meeting in the karate school. It was a new church, and they were looking for a place to meet. And karate schools have big open floors and lots of chairs. And so this church started meeting there. I thought, well, I might as well go to that church. I mean, I'm already at the karate school seven days a week. Why not go to there on Sunday morning too? So I did. And, and one Sunday night, we were in the pastor's house in his living room, and he was um, leading a Bible study on Psalm 51. And he had a glass of water like this one. And he said, this is our heart. This is how our heart comes into the world before God. It's clear and it's unpolluted and you can see God clearly through there. This glass is so clear. Some of you at the back were kind of like, didn't know that there was a glass here. And he said, but then sin comes. And he shoveled some dirt in there. And he said, this is what sin does to our heart. Sin makes it cloudy. Sin makes it hard to see clearly. Sin makes it hard to see God. 
As I looked at that glass, I realized this is what was happening to me. Yes, I had the rough childhood and yeah, the not so good church experience, but God fought through all that. What was really between he and I now was sin. Now he said, you can have these periods where it kind of settles down and it starts to become something like clarity again, but then you're just waiting for the next event in life to stir it up and it's all still there. Not to mention the sin we put in ourselves. And as he shoveled that dirt in, he named off some sins. And they were the sins I was doing. Because I wasn't a kid anymore. I wasn't a teenager anymore. I was a young adult. And I realized there's not just a dirty glass of water between God and I. There's a wide river. There's a wide river of filth separating me from God. And everything in that river, I shoveled into it. He said, you can try to scoop this stuff out. There's some surfacey stuff on the top you can kind of skim out of there. And there's some big chunks and you can kind of get that all. But he said, you can spend your whole life scooping this thing out and you're never going to get this to be something that you'd want to drink out of. He said, here's what Jesus does to our heart. He gives us a new heart. And I looked at that glass and I was like, that's what I need. And a week later, sitting up in my bed in my early 20s, crying my eyes out, I just prayed, Lord Jesus, if you would come and create in me a new heart, I will follow you forever. Israel and Ezra has the same problem. Yes, uh, they got hauled off into captivity by foreigners. And yes, they had to live 75 years without a temple to even worship God in at all. But that really wasn't what was between them and God. What was really between them and God was really filthy hearts. They had been warned for a thousand years not to worship idols. And yet they did it anyway. They had been warned for centuries to stop stealing the land of the poor, especially in Israel. They said, that's your own brothers and sisters. And every time one of them falls on hard times, you have these predatory lending practices that makes it where they, you end up owning their tribal homes and they don't. You've got to cut that out or you're going to be conquered by other nations. Well, they did it anyway. They had rooms in the temple where they started to keep prostitutes where you could go give a special offering and there would be this guy or this girl pretending to be a god and you could sleep with them as part of this really weird ritual. And that was inside the temple of God. They sacrificed their own children on altars of fire. Now you wonder, how did they do all that stuff? Didn't they ever read the scriptures? Well, no, actually they didn't. They had not read the scriptures for so long, they forgot what they were. There's actually a story in, in the Bible where they're cleaning out a back room of the temple and they find the scriptures and they're like, what's this? And they didn't know what it was till they started reading it. There's a wide river of filth that they had shoveled in as a people that separates them from God and they needed a new heart. And so the first thing they build when they come home is the, t the temple. And then uh, they finish it. In verse 18, it says, 
The temple of God was then dedicated with great joy by the people of Israel. The priests, the Levites, the rest of the people who had returned from exile. During the dedication ceremony for the temple of God, 100 young bulls, 200 rams, and 400 male lambs were sacrificed, and 12 male goats were presented as a sin offering for the 12 tribes of Israel. The priests and the Levites were divided into their various divisions to serve the temple of God in Jerusalem as prescribed in the book of Moses. God was teaching them a way to have their sin removed. And that's why they built the temple first. And that's why we pray prayers to Jesus, inviting him into our heart to create in us a clean heart because of his sacrifice on the cross. Okay, a little jump just happened there. How did we go from a temple and sacrificing hundreds of animals to Jesus sacrificed on the cross? How, how can it be the same God who had them do this for a celebration that has us do this? So that's kind of a, a hard Bible question that you may have had, but it is answerable. It is answerable from scripture. So if you've ever had that question of what about the temple sacrifices, why don't we do them? And then Jesus, what is the connection between the Old and the New Testament? Here it is. If you just give me your attention for a minute, Hebrews chapter 10, the first 10 verses will answer this for us. It says, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The temple was a tool of teaching that God gave to them. The temple taught them what sin was, what sin does to our heart. And he says, and it shows that we can't remove sin ourselves. But when God removes it, it's going to be something like this. So watch. Hebrews goes on. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, now these next verses you actually can't find in a gospel. Uh, most scholars believe these words are the words of a Christian hymn that they used to sing in this church at this time. It says, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. And then he jumps back to say, First, Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they were required by the law of Moses. Now, how could God not be pleased with them and they still be required by the law of Moses? It means they weren't satisfactory to remove sin, but God put it in the law of Moses to teach them, to teach them what sin was, that it, what it does to our heart. And that it's not something we can remove on our own. But when God removes it, it will look something like this. So watch. Then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. 
For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all time. It was always God's plan that he would remove sin. And when he did it, it wouldn't be in an annual celebration. It would be once and for all time. Because God does it. It's so powerful. It removes all sins from past, present, and future. The truth is, I'm still spooning dirt into this cup. But the truth is that what Jesus did on the cross is every day giving me a new heart. And you too. And this is what God wanted to cleanse us. To cross, to part that river of sin so that we can come home. There's no river so wide he can't bring us home. And so if you're relating to this story of the mountains of a rough start and the valley of some bad church experience, but the recognition of the wide river of our own sin, and you want to come home, that's what Jesus on the cross and our invitations to him are all about. And there's a prayer that you can pray. and we'll, we'll pray it together right now. And, and you don't have to say it out loud with me. You don't even have to move your mouth. You can just agree with the words of these prayers. And this is how this journey can begin. It's just as simple as this. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your word says, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. And that's what I want. Father, you know the mountains and the valleys and you know the rivers that are between us. And I pray that you would move those aside because I want to come home to you. I want that new heart. I thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, which makes this possible once and for all. And Lord Jesus, I will follow you forever. Amen. Then all that's left to do is celebrate. This will be the end of our passage today in Ezra chapter 6. They celebrated after their cleansing. On April 21st, the returned exiles celebrated Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were ceremonially clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. The Passover meal was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and by others in the land who had turned from their immoral customs to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So other people were joining in who already lived in that land. Then they celebrated the festival of unleavened bread for seven days, and there was great joy throughout the land because the Lord had caused the king of Assyria to be favorable to them so that he helped them rebuild the temple of God, the God of Israel. They celebrated their first Passover on homecoming. Did you know that last week, Jews all over the world were still celebrating this Passover? It's the most celebrated holiday in Judaism. It's not the holiest today of their calendar, but it is the one that most Jews celebrate the most often is the Passover. Did you know that on the night that Jesus was betrayed in that upper room with his disciples, he was celebrating that same Passover? Did you know that? And did you know that that is the night he changed the meaning of the Passover for Christians. He announced that this Passover lamb you're sacrificing, you're about to do that for the last time because God is going to make one last sacrifice 
for all time. And he created the Lord's table that night. Right? Because he took bread, which at the meal had a different meaning, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And afterwards, he took this one cup that had a different meaning in the Passover, and he said, this is now my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sin. One last sacrifice for all time. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you remember my death till I eat and drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So if you just prayed that prayer with me just now, then the right thing for you to do is come forward and celebrate. Tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and when you eat it, you are receiving the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all. And you're celebrating this new kingdom, this new Passover that he became and created in his name. If you prayed that prayer with someone else 80 years ago, you can still come forward for he's given you a new heart today and tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. Amen.